All right, welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. And uh, if you like this episode, remember, before you stop this and go on to your next podcast, do us, do us a favor, let's rate it, review it. You know you're going to love it already. Uh, we've got Dr. Thomas Ord in the house, and he's going to be talking about things I think you're going to be interested in. And if you don't know what he's talking about, um, well, do yourself a favor, go to his website already. It's thomasjord.com, and there is a plethora, yes, a plethora of information on that. Uh, we have many episodes that go way back, um, and you can find us on the Instagram and Facebook at Brew Theology, Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. If you want to start a chapter in your local community, go and hit Janelle or myself up at Ryan or Janelle at BrewTheology.org, and then you can get involved and get some curriculum, get some leadership guides, and really, for us, it's about the local communities all across the country that are uh, doing um we think are healthy, having healthy conversations and creating interfaith communities in pubs and coffee houses. So we've been doing this for, I think, seven, nine, I don't know if it's seven years officially, nine years yeah. unofficially. It's a blast. And having done it in two different cities, I highly recommend it, uh, whether you are in a small town like I'm at now, Waco, or a big city like Denver. Uh, don't say, oh, is it going to work here? I promise you, it's going to work if you put in the time and the effort, and we'll help you get started. All right. Well, um, we want to welcome Thomas J. Ord with us. Tom, welcome. Uh, Tom's a friend of mine through the Church of the Nazarene, and he's still holding on in the Church of the Nazarene. So we'll say that until we find out something changes. <laughs> but uh, Tom is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He directs the Center for Open and Relational Theology and doctoral students at Northwind Theological Seminary. He is an award-winning author and has written or edited more than 30 books. A gifted speaker, Ord lectures at universities, conferences, churches, and institutions. He's known for his contributions to research on love, science and religion, open and relational theology, the problem of suffering, and the implications of freedom for transformational relationships. And as Ryan said, you can find him at thomasjord.com. And tonight, we're going to talk about the death of omnipotence and the birth of omnipotence. Did I say it right? I say it omnipotence, but, you know, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Tom's just making up words, which I love. I love that about you. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's a great word. Well, thank you. I think it looks good on the paper, but I, I admit it's hard to know how to pronounce it. So. <laughs> and I even read through what you said in your book, and I still said it wrong, but it's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll know it by the time we're done. Uh, we were very lucky as a crew in Denver to get Tom uh, to come and talk through this with us and workshop it uh, a couple months ago. So it's exciting to get to sit down and talk about it. So um, before we dive into the book, Tom, do you want to add anything to t share who you are and what you do that you'd like to add in? Uh, well, I think you covered it pretty well. I'm coming to you from uh, Idaho in the Northwest. Um, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to chat through some of these ideas with your crew there in Denver. Uh, at the stage, I think I was talking with you, I think we were talking about the logical issues related to omnipotence. And yep. then I asked for suggestions about the problem of evil and some other things. So thanks so much for your contributions. Yeah, glad to have to have you with us and to get to participate in a, this fun kind of project. So. Um, so let's jump in. Um, in your book, you argue that the concept of omnipotence lacks support in the Bible. Can you explain how the Hebrew and Greek translations of words like 
Shaddai, Saboth, and Pantocrat. I'm you say it. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pantocrator. <laughs> Pantocrator. Okay, I was on the right path. Um, have contributed to the misunderstanding of God's power. How do these translations differ from the traditional understanding of divine divine omnipotence? Yeah, thanks. Um, the first chapter that you're mentioning is makes the claim that omnipotence, God having all power, is not an idea that is born in the Bible. Now, if you're if you got a typical Bible like an NRSV, NIV, or some similar one. If you look in scripture, you probably will never find the word omnipotence in it, but you will find the word almighty. And you find it in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, and Genesis and other places. And it always is derived from two Hebrew words. One is Shaddai, which most uh, biblical scholars say means breasts or the breasted one. And uh, Sabaoth, which means hosts or armies. And what, um, and so we get almighty, or like El Shaddai, or Elohim Sabaoth. Um, and if you look in English, translators have used the word almighty instead of breasts or hosts. And the reason that English translators do this is that in the second and third century BCE, so before the New Testament is written, a bunch of uh, Greek Jews decided they wanted to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And when they came to those two words, Shaddai and Sabaoth in, Greek, in uh, Hebrew, they translated them as the word pantocrator in Greek. Panto meaning all, kriteo meaning something like to hold or attain. And so they took the God of breasts and the Lord of hosts and made it all holding or all sustaining. And then you find that word pantocrator just 10 times in the New Testament, nine of those in the book of Revelation, and none of them straightforwardly mean anything like almighty or omnipotence, but in the English, you'll find translators translating them almighty. And then uh, a few centuries later, when uh, an early church theologian named Jerome is translating the Bible into Latin, he uses the word omnipotence. And that then gets in the creeds, and that's the word you'll find in lots and lots of theology books today. So we have a transition from Hebrew words that don't mean almighty or omnipotence to now everybody, well, everybody, practically everybody running around saying God is all-powerful, omnipotent, sovereign, almighty. Yeah. Would a better translation then be, so for that, uh, all, as he said, like the breast one, the, uh, the Lord of hosts, and then you have a uh, this perhaps moving into Greek, like a, a sustainer, a ruler of all, which is this is also different, like than the power that that one holds, and you know, which we'll yeah. get into more of that in a second. I don't uh, think so you we, can, yeah, I don't think you can get ruler of all in the Old Testament. You can get Lord of Hosts, like God is the leader of the army. But um, that is not the same as saying God has all power or even God is the ruler of everything. So, um, yeah, I don't think you can really get even God as ruler uh, from those words for the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, since they use that word pantocrator, uh, you could get God as all sustaining, all holding, all attaining, all, you know, uh, all grasping, maybe. 
Um, none of those means that God has all the power, but it, it, there is references to sort of say, our God is stronger than your God, or our God has power over all the earth, but your God only has, or your king only has power in one place. So there's those kind of comparisons going on. Right, right. That just reminds me of uh, songs in worship services about uh, our God is greater, greater yeah. is stronger. <laughs> and once you start feeling that anthem and beating your chest, you're like, you can't help it, but sing it. And it's just a part of it. We're gonna get to we're gonna get to liturgy and singing, I think, in a little bit. But this is a, this is the fabric of the church's DNA. I mean, we could thank Jerome. Thanks, Jerome. Thank you, not. Uh, but and so we're we're thanking Augustine for the original sin stuff, and now we're thanking Jerome for this. Uh, but th this is this is still. I mean, these translations like first off we can say okay I, we could agree with this tom people maybe you know i'm sure you have a lot of scholars too would say i agree with you on those specific words but they can't get rid of omnipotence so one of the challenges that you that you presented the concept of omnipotence it's the idea that if it means exerts all power that there are instances in the bible where creatures exert power against god's will so could you just share uh, some biblical passages or, or stories even uh, that highlight this tension and then how it undermines the notion of God's all-powerfulness. Yeah, let, let me be begin by saying early on in the book, I admit that the word omnipotence in the history of, of thought has a, a variety of different meanings, and it's rarely clearly defined. But there are three meanings that dominate one meaning is that God is literally the one who exerts all power. So as your question is, you know, what does the Bible say about that? And it seems obvious to people who just read the Bible as it is that God is opposing, fighting against forces, whether you think those forces are human forces or demonic forces or something, God is not the only one who's exerting power, especially if you take sin seriously. Presumably, humans who sin are using their power in ways other than what God wants. So I don't take seriously people who say the Bible clearly supports the view that God exerts all power. I just don't see that. A second possibility is that God can do anything. Now, in this, this, there's maybe a half a dozen passages that, that say, well, like in the New Testament, uh, with, with humans, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That sounds like God can do anything. And so in explaining that part in the book, I, st I list passage after passage that say things like, God can't tell a lie. God can't grow tired. God can't be tempted. God can't deny himself. God can't forsake us, et cetera, et cetera. To say that, okay, maybe there are some passages that say God can do anything, but there's lots of other passages that list things God can't do. So we're going to have to make some decisions, some interpretive decisions here. And um, so those are the two. I don't think those are serious. Um, I don't think those are serious claims for omnipotence in the classical sense. But the third meaning of omnipotence, I think, is the most contentious. It says God is omnipotent insofar as God can control others other humans, other creatures, creation. And that's the one I think a lot of people, when they read the Bible, they just assume God must be able to control creatures and creation. Right. Um, so, okay, could you, uh, 
how about, how about this? We've got uh, we've we've got a lot of people probably who either they're they're listening for the first time and they're hearing this, and maybe they've not gotten any open relational theological uh, short traditions. No, uh, they weren't there for the their open relational theology extravaganza that we had with you years ago. You know, they've they've never listened to Trip Fuller and Homebrew Christianity, and you've been it, on there yeah. a thousand times. Uh, there could, you know, there could be people who are just coming in just because like, oh, they're talking about God, so we're gonna we're gonna jump right in here. Um, so could you provide some more examples of, of passages that explain how, how they contradict the traditional understandings of God's un, unlimited power? Okay, yeah, great. Um, so a lot of people would say, well, Tom, look at Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Obviously, God is omnipotent. Only an omnipotent God could create the heavens and the earth. And they don't read the second verse of Genesis which says the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. So right at the beginning, there is something in addition to God. God's not the only power. And at the heart of open and relational theology is the notion that God is in a real relationship with creatures who have agency, freedom, power of their own and can cooperate with God or refuse to cooperate with God. And so it really takes human and creatures in general seriously in terms of what they can choose to do. I suspect a lot of your listeners have, you know, debated the whole free will versus divine sovereignty kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the hardcore Calvinists will just reject free will. But a lot of Christians will say, no, we, we really do have free will, but God is also in control. And by that, they mean that somehow, even though we're free, God also controls us. That's called compatibilism. Open and relational folks, we reject that. We think that's nonsense. If you're truly free, God can't control you. And so we start with theology that fits our own experiences. So when we come to passages uh, that talk about people doing other than what God wants, we take them seriously. Um, when Jonah is called to go to Nineveh and he decides he doesn't want to, you know, he's using his own agency to do other than what God wants and God can't control him. Um, you know, there's other circumstances that come along that make Jonah change his mind, but um, it's not God who is, you know, taking away Jonah's free will and that sort of thing. So we have a hard time reading the Bible and thinking God controls everything. Now, our opponents, they'll point out certain passages like God hardening Pharaoh's heart, or uh, that's probably the most well-known one. And we say that passage doesn't explicitly say God controlled uh, Pharaoh. Um, we can make good sense out of that passage and not think that God was the one who took away Pharaoh's freedom and totally controlled the situation. So I don't know if that's kind of what you're asking, but a couple of examples there. Right. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. I, you just mentioned Jonah. That's just got something going on in here of um, being an example of, as you talk later in the book, how the spirit is moving, is trying mm -hmm. to persuade us to love. But then Jonah's just kind of like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. And, and goes <laughs> along his way and pays the consequence for that. And I mean, that's a pretty human experience right there of how we can sidestep um, that cooperative spirit. Right, right. And then the story ends 
with Jonah eventually going to Nineveh and delivering the message that if you guys don't change, then you're going to be destroyed. And the text says, the king of Nineveh says to the people, you know, maybe if we put on sackcloth and ashes, maybe if we change our ways, maybe we won't be destroyed. And the book of Jonah ends with a phrase that just pulls the carpet out, out of most theologies. It says, and God repented. God had a change of mind. Open and relational theologians, we think God actually can't know all of the future in its entirety. And God can have plans, but then alter those plans because we as creatures altered our plans or made decisions in a particular way. So that's another unique feature of open and relational thinking. We think the future is open and that our choices really affect what God ends up doing. Well, it kind of leads into our next question. Uh, you provide numerous examples of things that God cannot do and argue that omnipotence requires a multitude of qualifications. Could you elaborate on some of the broad categories of these limitations and how do these limitations challenge the traditional notion of God's unlimited power? Yeah, the second chapter in the book is really philosophical. Um, it starts with something that I first heard as a college student uh, in a philosophy class. The question was, can God make a rock so big that even God can't lift it? Now, this is a paradox. Uh, either God can make that rock and therefore God can't lift it. So there's something God can't do or God can't make that rock. And so, again, there's something God can't do. And the truth is that even the most conservative theologians in Christian history have admitted there's lots of things God can't do. Some of them have to do with logic, like I just pointed out. Some of them have to do with, um, you know, things like mathematics. God can't make one plus one equal 367. Some of them have to do with who God is and God's nature. So just about every theologian in history has said God necessarily exists. God can't stop existing. So God can't say, you know, it's been a good run, but tomorrow I'm out. Um, no, God is going to exist necessarily, and God can't choose to stop existing. If God is omnipresent, which most theologians have thought, God can't decide not to be in Denver. God's going to be everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. Then there are certain limitations on God. If you're someone like me who believes in free will, that if we genuinely have freedom, God can't both control us and us be free. So there's another limitation. If you think there are chance events in the world, like I do, then God, those things can't be controlled by God. So God can't control chance events. Um, I list all kinds in this chapter, which yeah. is titled Omnipotence Dies a Death of a Thousand Qualifications. But I think the one that I like the most and maybe the most novel one is the claims about what God can't do because God is a universal spirit without a localized body. So God can't pick up rocks. God can't chew gum. God can't swim across the ocean. God can't build a building. There's lots of things God can't do because God's a universal spirit. And I try to point those out. All right, let's, uh, I'm going to move on to this, probably the 
the major issue that I, at least I've come across with people who either they've left the church for theological reasons. A lot of people, a lot of people leave for hypocrisy, abuse of power, or just sure. boredom. Uh, but the theodicy issue, the problem of evil. So, you know, you argue that the problem of evil should put an end to this belief in omnipotence. And I can just see you already just getting passionate right now thinking about this. So <laughs> can you can you explain how the existence of evil and suffering challenges that concept of an all-powerful God? And how does just recognizing the limitations and the qualifications of omnipotence help us address the problem of evil in a more meaningful way? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking and writing about for a while. And the basic issue is if God really does have the ability to control others, and if God is perfectly loving, God would want to stop, prevent the genuine evil, the pointless pain, the unnecessary suffering in our world. And yet we all act as if we think some things are genuinely evil, pointless, unnecessary. So we have to wonder why God doesn't stop them. Um, and so in previous books, I've wrote, you know, I wrote a book called God Can't, where I lay out the reasons why God can't prevent evil single-handedly. In this chapter, though, I, I took a, a couple of different tacks. One of the things I decided I was going to do was really come at uh, Christian liturgy. As you mentioned earlier, the songs, the prayers that we hear in church or on the radio and the lyrics that portray God as omnipotent, as all powerful. And I think those lyrics, those, um, uh, those prayers, those set us up to expect God to do things. And then when they're not done, we really doubt that God loves us or doubt that God exists. Mm -hmm. When we hear, you know, songs that say, you know, our God's the greatest. God's going to rescue you if you've got problems. And then when you have problems and you're not rescued, then you're going to think, okay, you know, what's going on here? Has God abandoned me? Is God punishing me? Um, and so it creates all kinds of problems. And I think for lots and lots of Christians, your average Christian probably is more shaped by the songs they sing in church or they listen to at their house or on the radio than they are by reading most of scripture. Um, and so I wanted to really hit this issue hard and put the blame for a lot of the problems and in the Christian liturgy itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got a good friend who always talks about having this cosmic kick me sign on, on her butt. And I'm just like, wow, that sort of that mentality. And I won't tell you what denomination, but does it matter? I mean, I feel like you can find this within <laughs> yeah. Roman Catholics through all Protestant denominations. Yep. Um, horrible way to live <laughs> yeah i mean you know some traditions emphasize some things more than others so if you're in the catholic tradition there's a strong uh element uh, especially if you follow augustine of kind of self-flagellation that you're supposed to you know not love yourself you're supposed to uh, believe deny yourself all these things and um, that leads to thinking that when you go through hard times, God must be kicking your butt. Um, other, you know, traditions have their own hangups. Some traditions think that uh, God is present sometimes, but not present other times. So if you pray super hard, the glory is going to come down, the spirit's going to arrive. But uh, if the spirit, if you don't feel that, well, you know, 
there, you must have sin in your heart. You must have something wrong with you. So all of these things, I think, are related to the questions of, God, of God's power. If God can do absolutely anything and God doesn't, quote, show up or God doesn't rescue you, if God doesn't save you from harm, then you have to wonder if God's truly loving or exists at all. Yeah, would you, um, I know this kind of crosses over into God can't, but could you just share a little bit about how changing the way we talk about God and evil, um, how that has helped people? Uh, and just maybe maybe you can tie that into um, um, omnipotence as well. But okay. I, I just think it's so important for people to hear um, I, I mean, I get to read your stories on Facebook about how this mm. helps people find freedom in the face of great evil and suffering in the face of rejection, death, illness. And so if you could just maybe share a little bit of that, just to give us a sense of how this actually plays out in the real world. Yes, I get letters every week from people who've read my work and say, finally, here's a theology that makes sense. I left Christianity. I left belief in God, or maybe I haven't left, but I've just been so numb and so um, disconnected. But this is a way that makes sense to me, and I can now start believing in a loving God. And some of those people have gone through really horrible things. They've gone through disease, or family members have died, etc. I remember one letter I got from a, a woman who had been sexually abused by her brother when she was growing up. And uh, she had been told, you know, that God is allowing this abuse. Mm. And she, in this letter said, she was one time in the midst of being abused by her brother. She had this vision that Jesus came and held her hand in the midst of it. And she said for a few days, she was, overjoyed that Jesus was with her in the midst of her suffering. But then she realized Jesus was with her and didn't stop what was happening to her because she, you know, she was told that Jesus can do anything. And so she walked away from belief in God. She just couldn't believe a God of love who could stop the evil that was happening to her would allow it. Then she read my book, which says God can't single-handedly stop evil. God's present, yes. God's working to stop it, yes. But God can't single-handedly prevent evil by overriding freedom, agency, etc. And that for her was what it took. She had other reasons to believe there might be a God, but she always thought that, she thought that that God had to be omnipotent. And I said, nope, you don't need to embrace omnipotence because for a number of reasons, but one of them is the Bible doesn't require it. But the bigger one, perhaps for her, was her own experience undermines the notion that God is in control. Yeah, I had I had two close friends uh, die in their thirties, leaving you know widow and uh, kids behind. I, I I think that in so many ways, I I I hear your your words, and I've I've read your I've read your work and been listening to open relational theological stuff. I think it was Greg Boyd's open theism was my slippery slope. Was it the it. blue pill or the red pill? Which one was it back in the day? <laughs> so I can I can thank Greg Boyd because I, I think in some ways, personally speaking, I, I think I would have lost my faith if I had not had been open to that open relational deity when those things were happening and just gave me a better theological construct and framework because uh, 
I mean, even somebody who's seminary trained and been in ministry and a pastor for years, I don't know if I could have handled it as well. So yeah. thank, I do appreciate that. I thank you. I know for some people when they hear God can't, that makes them like, ah, irate, but it, it also can save a lot of people's faith. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, you talked about seminary and I don't know what seminary you went to or your experience, but 99% of seminaries people go to, they won't really entertain the possibility that God is not omnipotent. Uh, it's too big of a risk. Now, right. the theologians in there might tell you this in private, but they wouldn't in a classroom setting because they could lose their jobs. Um, and consequently, a lot of people coming out of seminary really aren't prepared, intellectually at least, for the big questions people ask about suffering and evil. Um, and so my work is, at least part of my work, is trying to address that. No, thank you for that. Really yeah, appreciate that. Okay, so with this death of omnipotence, the question then arises, what does a non-omnipotent God do? So we're going to get kind of to your, your thesis here. So you Good. propose the concept of amipotence as a replacement for omnipotence. It's based on the idea that divine love is the most powerful force in the universe. So can you explain uh, how amipotence differs from omnipotence and how it solves some of these problems associated with the traditional concept of an all-powerful God? Uh like the problem of evil that we already talked about and uh, selective miracles and so forth. And yeah, well, we can kind of go all over the place with this, but there's your big umbrella. Go for it. Thank you. This is a... <laughs> yeah. So, you know, a lot of people read my book, God can't, and they were happy to hear that God's not responsible for evil, that God couldn't have prevented the crap that happens to them and others. And they can believe in God again. But then they said to me, okay, but what does God do? What can God do in the world? And my proposal in the last chapter of this book, The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Amipotence, is the amipotence alternative. Ami is the Greek or the Latin word for love, potence for power. So amipotence is the power of uncontrolling love. Now, a lot of theologians have wanted to say God is both loving and omnipotent but when push comes to shove omnipotence always seems to, to win out and so i make a long argument for the priority or the logical priority of love and to say that we should understand god's power and god's other attributes in light of love let's put love first and then work out what we think god knows what god where god is what god can do etc and then um I spend a lot of time in this chapter talking about trying to identify what God actually does in the world. Because if God is invisible and you can't perceive God with your five senses, um, then you're not going to look out the window and see God walking the dog down the sidewalk. Uh, you're not going to look up in the sky and see a divine hand reach down and stop the waters or whatever. Um, you're going to have to think differently about what God is up to. Now, what some people have claimed is that you really can't perceive God's action in the world. You can only look at creation and then use a scientific word here, infer that there is a God working behind the scenes. And I think that's a legitimate way to think. But what I do in this chapter is I propose something more bold. I propose that we actually perceive God directly 
through non-sensory perception, that there's a way of perceiving the world that's even more fundamental than what we can see, hear, taste, touch, whatever the other's last sentence, smell. There we go. <laughs> um, and the Christian tradition and other theistic traditions have tried to articulate this deeper perception with words like um, uh, intuition or still small voice or an inkling or uh, uh, the feeling of the move of the spirit. We've got all this kind of language that's not really sensory, but it is perceived, saying God is perceived in some way. And I take that stuff really seriously. I think that God really does act in every single moment in the world, just not in a as an actual divine body picking up things. How do you help people make that transition? Because we really like to use those metaphors. That's easy. That works. So how do we shift into this space of recognizing that that influence more subtly? Well, one of the things I think we have to do to recognize that influence is begin by with, you know, the claim of the whole book that God's not in control and not omnipotent. And that means that when things happen in the world that are not positive, that are not loving, that are not true, beautiful, good, then we don't have to say, well, that must be God's will. We can say God didn't cause it and God's not even allowing it as if God had the power to stop it. So that means we can begin by saying whatever's good, lovely, true, and beautiful, we can think God was a source of that. Uh, And ever whatever is evil, ugly, et cetera, we don't have to think that God wanted those things to occur. So that's one way to to sort of get at that question. Another way is to say, um, okay, if you can't perceive God with your five senses and God is a universal spirit of love, What other kind of analogies can we use among among creatures to talk about this kind of action? And two that are pretty common is to say God is kind of like wind. You can't see wind or air, but it has a real causal effect in our lives and in the universe. Another one is to say God is like a, a mind. If you crack open your head, and you look at your brain, you're not going to see a mind. But most people think they have some kind of decision-making mind in relation to their brain. And so it seems to have real causal influence, even though it can't be seen. So those kind of analogies can help us to think about a universal spirit who is a real cause in the universe without thinking that whatever happens is what God wanted or did. So obviously you're, you know, you believe this synergistic relationship better aligns with the biblical witness. Uh, I'm just, I'm trying to think so many people, they want to go back to the word, the scripture. Yes. Uh, Can can you, can you help with this, this, this new, this new word that's actually biblical? Um, Where where would you find some of these stories? I think the vast majority of scriptures identify explicitly creaturely action. And so the notion that God always acts, but the results require some kind of creaturely contribution or cooperation, I think that's widely supported by scripture. Now, I admit that there are some passages that only mention God acting. And in those cases, I say, well, you know, 
does it explicitly deny that creatures contributed or cooperated? No, there's, I know of no passage in the entire Bible that explicitly says God alone brought about this result and there was no creaturely contribution or the conditions of creation weren't, you know, somehow involved. Um, so this book makes the claim that although God always acts and always influences at all times, at all levels of existence from quarks to quasars, God never, in fact, can't single-handedly bring about results. So every story we find in scripture that talks about God doing something miraculous, we can nod our head in approval, but also believe that there was some kind of creaturely contribution, cooperation, or the conditions of creation. Let's say there's inanimate objects involved. The conditions of creation were conducive for that thing to occur. And this is good news in a bunch of different ways, but one of the best reasons it's good news is that it helps us to answer the question, why aren't there more miracles? Like, I don't know about you two guys, but I spend a lot of time in my life at a church altar or in a church group, a small group, praying for someone who's got some disease or their family members got something going on that's bad. And, you know, we're praying for a miracle and it doesn't happen. Um, you know, I, I wish I had more examples of times when miracles did happen, <laughs> but the vast majority of time I'm praying for something miraculous, it doesn't happen. So what do you do in those cases? Well, you guys know the usual lines Christians give. You didn't have enough faith. Uh, you know, God's got a better way. Uh, God's trying to teach you a lesson. Uh, you know, all those cliches that just don't make sense if you think about them for very long. My proposal can say God was trying to do something good, but the conditions of creation weren't conducive for that miracle, or there wasn't the kind of cooperation necessarily at the cellular level or the, so, uh, the societal level or whatever. Um, it doesn't then blame God when there aren't miracles. I will Seems tell you this. I, will, I do want to tell you this, Tom, though, I don't think I've told you this. Uh, this has really changed the way that I pray for people, um, especially in involving illness, because, um, you know, it used to feel very like kind of disconnected from them. You're praying for a name. Maybe you're thinking about their vision, but I've I've started actually kind of uh, more visualizing in a way the spirit moving through their bodies hmm. and and seeing setting up like if if the conditions are here would you move hmm. and um concentrating on those the things that are sick and yeah. um and just opening more of a meditative state than a than a me demanding that you heal them state right right um and in it's changed it no they don't always get better but it it almost i mean this will sound a little woo woo but it almost feel you know it almost feels like i can kind of sense like what's happening here yeah um yeah. and not not in a predictive way i guess but just more of a participatory way of influence of being present there with the spirit with them and and can is there an influence here and and 
it's one of the things that has kept me praying as my faith has deconstructed and changed. Um, good, good, good. But being yeah. able to show up for people in that way. Yeah, if I'm praying with someone, let's say it's someone who's got cancer, I usually, I have certain things I want to try to say in my prayer. If Let's say I'm present with them. I think that my prayer actually makes a difference to God, to them, and the world. It doesn't fix things single-handedly. I'm not saying that, but right. it makes a difference. And so when I pray, I will say things like, God, we are here believing that you are moving with us and amongst us and in my friend's body, wanting to heal. Notice I say wanting to heal. I didn't say you are going to get healed. I'm not setting them up. Right. And then yeah. I'll say something like, we also know, God, that there are forces and factors in my friend's body and, and in the world that oppose what you want to do. Now, sometimes my people who are listening probably think I'm talking about demons, but I don't have to talk about demons. I can talk about other things that are going on. Um, and so what that does is it's, it reminds the person listening to my prayer that it's not God alone acting here. There's other forces and factors in our bodies, in creation, in our histories, trauma, whatever. Those things are also having an influence in what's going on. And then the request part of the prayer usually is something like this. God, we commit ourselves to cooperating with you. Help us to discern. Give us insights on how we might cooperate with your actions, the physician's actions, and any other things that you might want to use to heal and to the extent possible my friend's cancer or whatever. So I try to name the request as God giving us ideas on how we might cooperate with God. Yeah. That seems a lot more humane in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And less setting people up for disappointment. Yeah. It takes, takes the pressure off of, of uh, both the deity and the, and the human. Cause I feel like you can, it can swing both ways. Yeah. When yeah. Looking at this. Yeah. Whatever. I don't want to give people the impression that the reason they're not healed is they just didn't have enough faith or they didn't pray hard enough or, you know, um, I think we do have cooperation that we must do with God. But sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, people are consciously wanting to cooperate with the healing spirit of love, but there are conditions on their bodies that are not cooperating. They're opposed to that, whether, you know, I have this view that uh, all of reality has a measure of responsiveness to God. Um, but anyway, um, so that helps us get past the, you know, you're not getting better because you didn't pray hard enough or didn't have enough faith problem. Right. Oof. I've, yeah, I've, I've heard, I've heard that a lot. That's uh, so damaging. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. So uh, amnipotence, it's not limited to Christianity. And as you know, we have an interfaith audience and communities uh, across the country uh, so this can be embraced by individuals from various religious traditions yep. uh, or those who identify with no tradition at all. So uh, can you just explain a little bit how uh, antipotence aligns with beliefs and values of other religious perspectives, whether it's, you know, obviously the Judeo-Christian one is probably the easiest one, but outside of outside of that, could you could you speak about that for, for a sec for well, you know, the list, uh, listeners who don't identify as Christian? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Obviously, I'm making claims that there is a divine universal spirit. So I'm making a, a theological claim. This idea might not fit well if you're an atheistic Buddhist. They have 
some other ways of talking about nonviolence. But, you know, if you don't believe in God, um, then this might not sound attractive. Uh, but it just so happens that today I spent most of the day working on an essay in a book that's coming out that has both Muslim and Christian uh, theologians who are open and relational. So they can affirm this omnipotence of a God who is uncontrolling love and also be a Muslim. Um, and this is true of people I know in the Baha'i faith. It would be true of some Hindus. It would be uh, true of lots and lots of people in America who are sick and tired of organized religion, still believe there's something like a loving God. They haven't got maybe it figured out exactly what they think, but they have this intuition. There's some transcendent loving spirit. They just don't want to identify it with any religious tradition. This can fit you as well. Mm, I like it. Cool. Janelle, any, any devil's advocate Indians, any, have any, you have any curveballs at the end, knuckleballs, what other kind of <laughs> baseball pitch can we throw at you here? Well, there, is it all right if I sort of make a few additional comments why I think? Yeah, sort of on go for it. I don't develop this much in the book, but I identify five or six other reasons why we should get rid of omnipotence. Here's one. If you're like me, and I suspect you too, you grew up in a tradition in which a lot of people thought the Bible had to be inerrant if it was from God. And then you read the Bible. And if you're like me, you read the Greek and the Hebrew. And it turns out there's all kinds of inconsistencies, not just in the Greek and Hebrew, even in the English text. And then you're thinking, okay, well, if this is inspired by God and God is omnipotent, then God ought to be able to make sure there aren't any errors. Mm -hmm. But if you get rid of omnipotence, then all of a sudden having a Bible with errors makes a whole lot better sense. Then you can say people doing their genuine best to try to understand God, but sometimes they just get it wrong. And even God can't stop the errors. Another issue is the uh, LGBTQ matters. A lot of people have a traditional view of uh, sexuality, think an omnipotent God made sure to create just males and just females, and only those two ought to you know, be partners for life. But you look in the world and it turns out it just ain't the way it is. People have same-sex attractions. People are born with varying genitalia etc cetera, etc cetera. there's intersex there's asex there's all kinds of variety it makes a lot more sense the queer uh world in which we live in makes a lot more sense if god's not omnipotent because that means god isn't you know manipulating all the details of life and the diversity just matters better or take religious pluralism if god really cared a ton that we had the one right truth that God would make it crystal clear and unambiguous which was the right religion. But I don't know about you two, I don't have that kind of clarity. I mean, I'm a Christian, but uh, I don't, I also think there's some very valuable things in other religious traditions. And that makes a lot better sense if God is not omnipotent. And let me drill down on that one. I know lots of people, in fact, I got a note two days ago from someone who grew up in a tradition that really valued dramatic religious experiences. I think he was Pentecostal. And all these people in his church, you know, spoke in tongues and had these really wild experiences with God, and he never had it. Now, you'd think that if dramatic experiences are helpful 
And if people like this guy were really praying for that dramatic experience, you'd think an omnipotent God would make sure that experience happens. But since it didn't happen, it makes a lot more sense to think their God is not omnipotent. Um, yeah, I could keep going and going, but there's lots of other reasons to give up on omnipotence because we can overcome these big questions that we have uh, in our lives and the questions that lead a lot of people to doubt there's a God at all. Yeah. Um, can you, one of the things that did jump out to me while I was reading um, was, can you clarify a little bit where evil comes from? I know we've touched on it a bit, but just if God is creator in this universal spirit and influencing everything for good, does evil come from humans or is there a bigger story here? Yeah, great question. I addressed it a little bit in the end of chapter three. Um, you know, in my God can't book, I laid out these five aspects of a solution to the problem of evil. And I realized there was actually a sixth one that I didn't have in the book. <laughs> and so I put it in this new book. And this deals with the question of where evil comes from. You know, if you think God once existed all alone, and then for whatever reason, decided to create a universe out of absolutely nothing, then it seems like the possibility for evil stems back to the creation of God. So God would have to create either evil or at least the possibility of it. Um, so in this chapter, I say one other aspect to solving the problem of evil is to believe that although God is creator, God never starts with absolutely nothing. God is continually creating out of that which God previously created, which means, and here's the answer to your question, the possibilities for evil are baked into what it means to be a creature, not the necessity, but the possibility. So evil occurs when either creatures choose other than what God wants, or there are you know, accidents that happen, random events that make the world worse than it might have been. Uh, it's not because God allowed those evils or not because God once was all alone and could have created absolutely anything, including a world with not even the possibility of evil, but it's just baked into what it means to be a free creature. Which kind of, I mean, that kind of br brings up a picture for me of just the development of universes and just yes. some of what we know that it's this constant flow in and out of um, maybe like material existence when we look at black holes and we start looking at you know how things are reused um yeah th there's this ongoing cycle and so we can work to make it better but that's a choice we have to make right i totally agree and also as in an evolutionary process in which there are more and more complex beings in our particular world, humans are the most complex. The greater the complexity, the greater the capacity for both great good and great evil. And so the more complex the world, the better things could get and the better the worse things could get. It's up to us to decide how we're going to make decisions. Um, and so, again, that puts the kind of it puts uh, significance upon our lives and our decision-making moment by moment. What's your, what's your dream for this idea? How do you think this will change 
the world? Um, I try to be a realist. <laughs> I think uh, things change rather slowly. And usually they change because of crises. As I look at at least the Western world, there's a lot of people who are going through religious crises. They've been raised in conservative kind of religious traditions. I'm most familiar with the evangelical world, but this is true of Judaism and Islam as well. And they've found those traditions wanting for a bunch of different reasons. Sometimes it's because of abuse. Sometimes it's because of uh, anti-intellectualism or whatever. But one of the big, or not one of, many of the biggest intellectual reasons for rejecting traditional or conservative faith comes back to believing in, a, in an omnipotent God. And if we can get rid of omnipotence, we can retain a God of love. And my hope is that this book will contribute to the transformation of the image or our, our picture of God to be actually something more like a Bible picture uh, and less like uh, the classic God of at least classic Christianity. Yeah, let's hope. Yeah. So go on Amazon, or actually, if you don't like Amazon, the big, bad, omnipotent Amazon that they are, <laughs> go somewhere else and get the death of omnipotence and the birth of omnipotence. Thomas J. Orr, that's J-A-Y, Orr.com. Thank you so much. This is, you are a breath of fresh air. There it is right there. <laughs> and yeah, just that we talked about the air that we breathe, the spirit, the wind. That's, that's such a, it's a good picture analogy. Uh, yeah. Even even today, I was on a walk today and I, I was trying to kind of have this picturesque God ground of being moment as I'm walking because usually it's out in nature when I have those. Um, so it's, it's this, these are helpful discussions and hopefully the people who are listening um, it, it sparks something within them to either go check out the book or, or talk to their friends about this as well hopefully both yeah well thanks for the opportunity to chat about it and and thanks to both of you for the good work you're doing um, you know it takes a village and and thanks for being a part of that village absolutely yeah all right all right well uh share it online rate it review it five star of course and uh yeah cheers Cheers. Clinkety clink. <laughs>